right out of the gates, I want to talk about this interest rate hike that goes up to 4.75, 25 points added to a lot of Canadians' bottom lines. We could talk about the government borrowing, printing, taxing. We could talk about these rebate checks that every once in a while pop up in your, um, I guess you would say your bank account, 100 bucks here, 150 bucks there, it's supposed to help. But then again, the Bank of Canada steps forward and says we're going to raise it. So out of the left pocket into the right one, or so that's how it feels. To break this down and really make sense of what the Bank of Canada did today with this rate increase is Rob Levy, CKNW business analyst. Rob, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Nice to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you because I think there's a lot of people right now that look at the headline and say, well, here we go again. But I want it in its simplest terms, which is, I think, something you do so very, very well. What does this mean to the average Canadian? It it depends where your borrowing is tied to, whether you're on a fixed rate instrument or something that's more variable. But yeah, the, the cost of living has gotten more expensive over we've seen over the past year. Uh, but according to the Bank of Canada, not expensive enough. And I, I like the way you tied it in there because that's something we've seen. That's been the conundrum, I, I think, of the pandemic is, is all the government fiscal policy that went with it to try and help out Canadians. But uh, these measures that you saw today from the Canadian Central Bank is saying, we still have to work pretty hard to slow things down. We were thought they were at the end of their interest rate hiking path a couple months ago, but you know, clearly as the economic data is sort of showing, these guys still have a problem. They've got to keep raising interest rates to try and slow things down, moderate this Canadian economy. Absolutely. Rob, I'm going to try to get you to turn up your mic just a wee bit here. I, I feel like it's uh, one of those things where I want to make sure everybody can hear what we're talking about here because I'm a guy that got a home a couple of years ago, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go the variable route. And at the time, I thought, well, surely it's not going to go any higher. And you know what, maybe I was playing with fool's money. But right now, I do feel like a bit of a fool because I thought that maybe I could weather the storm. And this sounds like it might not be the last interest rate. No, that was that was certainly the warning from the Bank of Canada, too, with, with their announcement today. And what's interesting, I think, too, about what they said today versus the policy announcements over the past couple of years when they were raising rates is they made it very simple for us. Uh, inflation has gone down, uh, but that's mostly related to energy prices going down. And as we see the monthly inflation prints, we see that it's sticky. Economists use the word sticky around that 4% level. So Bank of Canada wants to get inflation back down to 2% and we're not there yet. The other thing, and and this is, I think, the key thing that sort of solidified the decision for them uh, this Wednesday was last week when the GDP numbers came out for the Canadian economy. The areas of the economy that should be sensitive to higher interest rates actually showed growth quarter over quarter, like where consumers spend. And potentially, this is what everyone's debating right now, we're seeing a rebound in the housing market. Uh, So those two factors, interest rate sensitive areas, and they're performing well instead of flatlining or maybe slowing or or declining just a little bit and the bank of canada sees the opportunity said we have to raise interest rates again and we've got job numbers this friday and i can tell you if they're strong and the economic data continues to be strong uh bank of canada is likely going to raise rates in july that's the message they gave and it's going to be that soon july potentially i mean this is they meet every six weeks this is how they dictate policy 
I, you know, coming into this, it looked like the economy was slowing down and they bought themselves a little time. But I, I think that really is the X factor here. Hey, when you have something like personal or household expenditure, consumption uh, metrics up 5% quarter to quarter into the first quarter of this year, and then you're coming into the summer when everyone's out and about spending money on vacations at restaurants, that kind of thing. If we still see signs of a hot economy, they're not going to be afraid to raise interest rates again by 25 basis points. They continue to be proactive. It almost when you go back a year ago and they didn't take the opportunity to raise interest rates uh, beginning of 2022 and the market kind of went away from it a little bit. I, I, I think they've got their finger on the pulse here. They're ready. Uh, to keep interest rates higher and sort of slow down the economy. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's extreme data dependence, and even Friday's job numbers will tell a bit of a story. And, and very quickly, Rob, I really appreciate you coming on, especially right out of the shoot here. There's a lot of people coming into the inbox already, right in the middle of this segment, saying, well, why can't the feds stop asking for money? Why do they continue to spend? Is that church and state, are those apples and oranges, or is there a direct correlation between the frustrated, frustration of Canadians who are absorbing these in, in interest hikes with the government continuing to spend, spend, spend? Yeah, I, I think you're right there. I mean, one becomes the issue of politics and then also the fact that they will tell you that they've slowed down spending from the pandemic, uh, but maybe it's not happening quickly enough. But it certainly becomes a political issue. Uh, they want to keep spending, but they want their spending to be targeted. And I think that's the narrative that you more get from a political level. Uh, but it's the challenge. And it's the challenge that central bankers around the world face is that you have this inflationary environment right now. And almost their measures have been counterproductive. Sorry, it's said another way. Fiscal spending may be a little counterproductive uh, to what you're seeing in terms of the monetary policy effort. The United States is the greatest example of that with the Inflation Reduction Act. And many people call it one of the most misnamed uh, bills ever to make its way through Congress because of the amount of spending uh, that took place. Uh, so it, it, it means they've got their work cut out for them and they're kind of working against one another. It's great stuff, Rob. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. Do appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Rob Fain for Jill this afternoon. The health minister stepped to the podium with a laundry list of solutions immediately, short term, long term, a little bit of everything, says he's going to still be consulting with uh, healthcare workers throughout the province to flesh out what can even be done beyond what he announced today. So it was a pretty positive vibe, at least at Surrey Memorial, because I think there's a lot of people that are like, listen, we've brought you our problems. You're in charge. Give me some solutions. And today he at least attempted to do so. To break this down even further, our intrepid global news reporter based at Ledge, Richard Zussman. Richard, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, let's delve right into this. Adrian Dick steps to the podium, and after a couple of uh, statistics about how wildly popular and growing Surrey is, got right into some pretty significant commitments, no? Yeah, so the big one, obviously, is to expand the services delivered at Surrey Memorial. And this has been something that doctors have been asking for, uh, even at times saying, we don't need the new hospital. Instead, focus on ensuring that we have the facilities we need at Surrey Memorial. And the government is committing to do both. Uh, considering this is so fresh, a lot of details are lacking in terms of what that expansion is going to look like. But it is going to be um, an expansion of the footprint on the current site, as well as this commitment to continue to build 
uh, this new hospital. And we know now that the preferred bidder on that new hospital will be chosen within the next month. And construction work on that site uh, will start unfolding over the next few years. And then there's a bunch of short-term solutions at all uh, that the minister rhymed off there, uh, including improving the physical space at Surrey Memorial now. Uh, The maternity ward is a big part of that. Uh, and then attempting uh, to continue to address the issue around staffing. That's far more complex, uh, but there are a number of things the province is doing to uh, ensure staff levels are up as they continue to work through this contract negotiation with hospitalists. This came after two intense days of meetings. Uh, Minister Dix, Dr. Victoria Lee, Board Chair Jim St. Clair were meeting with healthcare workers over the last two days. Uh, and this is ultimately a lot of things they heard in terms of concerns. This is what they're now implementing. So uh, Miss Lee and I'm assuming Jim Sinclair keep their posts as well. I hadn't I hadn't seen or heard Jim Sinclair in a while. So <laughs> when you're bringing out everybody to the forefront here, obviously this is a day that they feel pretty positive. I felt like he was painting, and Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, he's painting the picture of, listen, we're doing the best we can, but we're coming out of what he might describe as the perfect storm. Combination of COVID, staffing, resources, it seems like everything happened you know, all at once, and certain things you could predict, and then certain things you just got to react. Did you feel that today's message was positive and that it will be well-received by the union and by the staff workers himself? Yeah, I think the proof will be in the pudding, right? So yeah. you hear politicians say a lot of things, and I think uh, the frontline workers are experiencing this. This is why they have gone to the dramatic step of publishing open letters, of speaking in the media, as they are experiencing on the front lines every day these significant challenges. And they will be vocal in speaking about whether these measures put in place or announced today are actually doing the trick in terms of easing that pressure. You're right. We haven't heard from Jim Sinclair. There have been requests to speak to the board chair. Uh, He stood to the microphone today. I, I think largely he had no real substance to provide. It was a show of solidarity that uh, there's confidence from the health minister in the leadership at Fraser Health, in his board chair, Jim Sinclair, and the CEO, Dr. Victoria Lee. Uh, Now it's going to be about, you know, ensuring that what they have promised here continues. Like a few things that I didn't mention, they're going to increase the number of internal medicine positions to support admitted patients. They're going to increase capacity in outpatient and community services discharge patients. Uh, They're going to focus on psychological and physical health and safety of staff by providing additional counseling services. So all of those measures are concerns they heard. Now it's going to be how do they implement them? So we get this announcement and I've, you know, been talking with a couple of healthcare workers as well. And one of the challenges that they face is, you know, we've heard about how they're going to try and help with the staffing and the security and, and, and just the admitting and out, outpatient work and all of that stuff. But they say that they're still dipping, they're doing double duty, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. I didn't hear that really get addressed other than, hey, we're going to be looking at, you know, doing some more targeting abroad and, you know, all of the stuff around it. I didn't hear something that was straight down the middle that might help somebody that's already burnt out and there is no real answer there and i think around the edges is where the province needs to attack first and part of that is counseling services burnout is real the population growth in surrey is real uh it is this combination of things as you described it this perfect storm uh finding staff is not going to be snap the fingers and there it is 
There's a new medical school coming. Uh, every jurisdiction in the world is looking for healthcare workers. BCA is competing in a global marketplace for those workers. Uh, so they need to focus on largely other things to ease pressure because finding new staff, in essence, we could um, clone every healthcare worker in this province. And we still probably would have challenges yep. with staffing. And that, that's the reality that we're facing. So trying to best utilize the staff we have now will be the, the first part of that focus. Because clearly that is the biggest problem that plagues not just our healthcare system, but all healthcare systems. And we're heading to a summer, Rob, where we have that burnout you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the staffing shortages you mentioned. And on top of that, doctors are going to start taking time off to spend time with their family. You know, their kids are out of school, just like everyone else, nurses the same situation, and that's going to put additional pressure. Plus, we see in a number of communities an influx in tourists. So we'll see people come into Vancouver, people come to Victoria, people going to Kelowna. And all of that population increase puts more pressure on the system as people are outdoors, mountain biking, swimming, playing, more prone for injury more pressure on the hospital system. So it's going to be a tough summer. Like this, this what we heard today is not going to fix those problems immediately, yeah. but it's starting to address some of those deep concerns that led to this, you know, really you know, unprecedented um, pressure from all these letters that we saw from OBGYN, ER doctors, and, and those on the front line. This might seem like a real simple observation, but one of the things that kind of caught me as I was reading the early reports was that this new hospital that they were, you know, building had the same bed count. So my thought process is, okay, we're getting new technology. The floors are a little shinier, but how are you still with a a growing population and an aging population going to find space for everybody if you haven't increased the the intake opportunity and ability? Yeah, and those have been some of the concerns raised. Also, no maternity ward in the new hospital. The opposition has been raising these concerns for some time. Uh, We will see what happens as that project evolves. The new facility at Surrey Memorial announced today will offset some of those concerns. So within 18 months from now, uh, they are going to add a modular unit uh, to provide additional renal services. Uh, They're also building a second uh, radiology suite at Surrey Memorial, adding two cardiac catheterization labs at Surrey Memorial. So there's going to be physically more things at Surrey Memorial now to offset that new hospital, but it's the same issue we have with schools, Rob. The second they get built in communities like Surrey and Langley, they are full. And in some cases, there are already portables. Basically, within building it, the next school year, it is full. So it's a challenge. We're adding a lot of people to this province and 100,000 a year. And I think the last number was about 60,000 of those 100,000 are going to Surrey and Langley. And, And that's a pressure that the province needs to invest heavily in. This government has invested more in capital funding than any other government. But the question is, is it going to the right places at the right time? And, and this is largely what they're going to have to answer now as they work through these promises they made today. It's great insight, Richard. Thank you. Appreciate your yeah, time my today. Pleasure is always our, my All pleasure right. is I think I danced to this after a tequila or two down in uh, Cabo San Lucas. <laughs> One of the last trips that I've taken, by the way. I love it when there's nobody to have a conversation with because there's no laugh track or anything. You just see people on the other side of the glass laughing. Anyways, all right, onward and upward as we go. Uh, you know what? When we talk travel, there's only one person that we bring on the show. Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. 
Oh, hi, Rob. I laugh and I giggle. I, th- I also dance when I hear that song. It's one of my faves. You know what? There's stuff that you dance to in Mexico that you would never dance to any- <laughs> when you're back There's home. stuff I wear in Mexico that I would, <laughs> and that I drink in Mexico that I would never yes. normally drink at home. Yeah, with the um, ones that have the umbrella, I guess. Yeah, oh, exactly. Well, there's lots of travel news to talk about. I don't even know where you want to start. I, there was just so much information I sent to you. Well, I always like st- uh, talking about stuff that affects my pocketbook. So before we get to some of the deals that are out there right now, can you flesh this out that airline officials are talking about this mind-boggling hike for Canadian Air Security, a new charge? I have to tell you, I'm so disappointed about this. In fact, I feel like the charges are actually like mind-blowing. Um, in in March, when the Liberal government put out their budget, they slipped in a nearly 33% hike in the air traveler security charge, which will show up on uh, all of our flights. It's not actually happening until next May, but it's going to rise, like I say, 32.85%. And for a domestic one-way flight, um, the fees will go to 9.94 and they were sitting at 7.48 so that's almost $20 for a round trip domestic flight instead of just about $15 and then transborder so those are the flights that go to and from the US they're going um, to increase to $34.42 for yeah it's an, an international number. Yeah, it's it is, and it's super disappointing, especially because of the inflation right now. Everyone's kind of yeah. hurting. And if you've looked at flights, you know how expensive they are at the moment. It's really expensive to fly. Well, let's talk about flying locally or at least across Canada because I love polls like this. I mean, certain people hate polls like this when they're at the uh, wrong end of it. But we're talking about the number of complaints per 100, the worst airline in Canada. And drum roll, please, it goes to oh. Flair. Yeah, okay. You know what? I, I really don't like to point out airlines um, for bad bad service and things, but this was something that came out. It was actually federal data, and it showed that the ultra-low-cost carrier Flair did receive the highest number of complaints compared to other major carriers. It was actually shocking. Over 20% of every flight had complaints on it. That's wow. absolutely massive. So... Um, in comparison, WestJet had 10 complaints, well, 10.7 complaints per 100 flights. Air Canada had just 5.8. So there's even this dedicated Facebook group. You may have actually heard this already, Flair Airlines Nightmares. I have. It has over 10,000 members. Anyway, it's a bit of a horror show, and I'm really hoping that the um, the issues that are the things that keep coming up with customers. So this is last-minute cancellations, it's delays, it's lost luggage, poor communication by the airline, that hopefully they will take this information, learn from it, and improve the service so they, they're not in this position next year. Mm. You know, Claire, one thing I'm guilty of, especially late at night, is sitting there on my couch and just scrolling through TikTok or what have you, just killing some time. And every once in a while, I'll see a situation where there's an unruly passenger uh, on an airline. And I, I think to myself, man, if I was ever on that flight, what would I do? But what I didn't realize, and there's new data coming out, is that this is actually happening more and more. Yeah, and this was so, so sad because all sorts of incidents kind of they fell after the mask mandates were removed on most flights. You probably heard in the news during COVID, it was really alarming. Like people were just 
nasty. It brought out the worst in people. Um, but what's really disappointing is that IATA, which is the International Air Travel uh, Transport Association, they came up with new data that showed that um, the incidents actually went up by 37% in 2022 compared to 2021. Um, the most common causes were uh, verbal abuse, intoxication. I mean, no surprise there but also non-compliance. So that means people weren't listening to what the flight in flight crew were saying. And the most common examples of that were like really smoking or vaping in the cabin or toilets. <laughs> Everyone knows you can't. you can't. Failure to fasten seat belts. Like you're being told, you're being shown. I mean, who needs to see that anymore? But you're being told, please fasten your seat belts. We're about to taxi out. Please fasten your seat belt. You hear it over and over again. And still there. All right. Maybe we'll, uh, Dial up Claire one more time. Uh, the next question that I want to ask her uh, when we do get her back is about this Air New Zealand who are actually asking some passengers to step on a scale before boarding an international flight. I don't think I've ever heard of this. Apparently, it happens already on their domestic flights. And one of their spokespeople said, we know stepping on the scale can be daunting. We want to reassure our customers that there's no visible display anywhere. No one can actually see your weight, not even us. It is completely anonymous. It's for load control improvement. <laughs> yeah, I've had this happen before. I've been in a line. It's not been me, but I've had a, a guy in front of me. I remember this vividly. It was at Lester B. Pearson Airport. And he was just having it out with the person at the, at the check-in because I guess he was like a pound or two over when it came to his luggage. So they're like, hey, you're going to have to take this 1.8 pounds out of your bag because it's over the limit. And he says, well, wait a minute. Is it because it's going to keep the plane grounded? Because you don't know how much I weigh. And so it's a completely logical argument is how are you going to do this for the bags, but not the passengers? Well, Air New Zealand is deciding that they want to weigh everything that goes on their aircraft. Everything. My question to you, because apparently this is um, voluntary. It's... <laughs> I don't know if I'd volunteer to get on a scale. I don't care if I'm air flying Air New Zealand or Air anybody. I don't know if I would. Claire, thank you for rejoining me. Uh, the Air New Zealand asking passengers to step on a scale is where I went for our next conversation point. Uh, that, to me, is something I never thought I would see. Um, yeah, I'm out. Uh, actually, I, was, I'm out too. I, hate stepping on, I hate stepping on a scale. That said, I have actually stepped on a scale in certain situations where I'm going on a very small aircraft or a helicopter and they have to weigh you. Um, nobody sees it. I, I'm going to also qualify this because it is completely voluntary. Air New Zealand is actually doing a survey. They want to make sure that they know what the average is for not only their passengers, their crew, their cargo, their meals on board, the luggage. And they do this every few years, and they're hoping to get about 10,000 passengers during the month of June to do it. But if I'm given the choice, I'm not going on. Yeah, they, they could round up without me. I, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Claire, let's finish with some great deals. Um, this is one of the things that I make sure that I listen every chance I get to you. Uh, where could I be going, and what are some of the good hotspots? Yeah, there's some really good deals out there. I wanted to share one that's a seven-night Alaska cruise. We had the luxury of getting some really good deals because we live in uh, an embarkation point. And so this is a seven-night Alaska cruise on board a ship in September, one that I've actually seen. I saw it when it was just being launched in Cadiz, Spain. I toured it. 
called the Cone Exam. It's beautiful. Um, September the 16th, 23rd, or 30th, the seven-night cruise sailing round trip from Vancouver with a 75 US dollar onboard credit is 629, the taxes of 349. Um, for those who have to take vacation time and are looking for a fall getaway, the Riviera Maya, a real favorite for people who live here in BC. November uh, 1st through until the 29th, I found some deals that include airfare and seven nights. It's staying in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 969 taxes of 626. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, fire one more at me. I'd love that. Vegas, cheap, cheap if you're looking. August 13th through until December 12th. It's airfare and three nights staying in a four-star hotel. This particular deal is staying at Planet Hollywood. There's so many there. You can, you know, pick and choose. Um, And they might be a little less, a little more. But I thought this deal was particularly good. It's $3.99, the taxes of $2.12. Wow. For air and the accommodation. Yeah, and it's a nice hotel, like a yes. four-star for three nights. I like that property. It's super central. Yeah, it's right in the middle of the strip. You beat me to it. Claire, good stuff. Maybe I'll see you in Vegas before all said and done. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll <laughs> dance to holiday. Well, we'll never admit it, but uh, maybe. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. Appreciate <laughs> Thanks, your time today.